So hello and welcome to the Talks Night podcast today. We've got Rob from Little Comets and we've got Harry here also. How are you, man? Not bad. How are you? Yeah, good, good. So we're finally coming towards the end of 2020 and it's been a long year. I mean, I was talking to the missus the other day and she said, it's been the longest, shortest year. I thought like, it doesn't really make sense, but it does. Because it's flown by, but it's, yeah. it hasn't half dragged. So how's yeah. it going for you? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. We were watching a, watching a television programme last night, me and my partner. And I said, oh, this is one of the best things we've seen since. I think I mentioned, I can't remember what the programme is called. And she was like, when did we watch that? And I said, summertime. <laughs> it's like, no way, that seems like it's only a few months ago. It seemed like an absolute year ago but if you write down the things you've done this year and achieved like it's pretty much nothing so it's been like that like it's dragged but at the same time there's not much to show for it like the minute me and Mickey are building we've moved studios out of Mickey's garage building a new one in his, in his back garden at least that's nice because I think at the end of the year there'll be at least something like tangible that we can look at and be like right well at least we did that this year um, but yeah in a, in a creative sense yeah. it's been it's been quite tough really. Yeah, like I think it was Tiger King, the program on Netflix came out and like the first lockdown long ago. Yeah, so like obviously we're near the end. What have you got planned for the coming future? Yeah, I think it's gonna be tough really because venue wise, we don't know when venue is gonna be open again and even then, every band in the world is going to want to tour. So we're going to then probably have to wait a little bit longer to tour. So like, in a live sense, we're kind of desperate to, um, desperate to get back to something as soon as possible. But, you know, we just have to be patient and wait. But we've got a lot of songs to record. So I think as soon as the studio's done in December, I think we'll just be in there from January the 1st, just, you know... Just getting as much stuff recorded as possible. Um, uh, Try and make up for the kind of time we've lost this year, really. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm so thankful we're finally coming towards the end of it. And it looks like, you know, with the first vaccine today, looks like we're finally going to be pushing through. And uh, we're all looking forward to Christmas. Are you looking forward to Christmas? Yeah, it should be it should be lovely, actually. I think we're slightly nervous that um, the little boy's still at school. And obviously, if his bubble bursts in his class, then he'll have to isolate for two weeks. And it's kind of getting up to that window now where he would have to isolate over Christmas. So that's kind of a little bit nerve-wracking in the minute. But I think Christmas-wise, it, it, it'll it be bittersweet because I I live in like Birmingham now and I haven't been home up to Jarrow since last December. And I haven't seen my mum and dad since February, March time. And we're going we're gonna to go up on Boxing Day, but they've decided now that they just want to wait until the vaccine's sorted. So it'll be quite sad over Christmas because I think it will really kind of like hit home that I haven't seen them and they haven't seen the grandchildren for like the whole year. So it'll be lovely, but at the same time, it'll be like, it'll be, it'll be quite yeah, tough from that point of view, I think. I think by the time Christmas comes around next year, everyone will just be so more appreciative than like, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, the one thing I'm already starting to hear in there is all I want for Christmas is you. I just feel like it's all I've heard. <laughs> but, like, what's your favourite Christmas song? 
I'll throw this out. Favorite Christmas song. Oh, there's one that goes Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, and then it's kind of got the horn bit that goes do 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 do. I quite I quite like that one. Um, but yeah, the rest like we we put the Christmas tree up on Saturday, so I had kind of like a Spotify Christmas playlist. And I was saying that I, I reckon the standard of Christmas songs because if it's a song about Christmas, it just gets on a playlist. But the standards, I think you have to have a lower standard of song. Like Elton John's got that Christmas song. Yeah. How does it go again? Like get into Christmas. Da, 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 da. It's so crap compared to like. <laughs> I think a lot of artists are like that. Like they're just kind of. I don't know. It's almost a, it's enough that it's a Christmas song. So I'm not I'm not too big on. Christmas music, especially as it's been since Halloween ended, it seems to have just been like wall to wall Christmas. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Harry. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> My favorite. Um, I'm going to be really like obvious and traditional and be like that. Um, is it Fairy Tale New York? Is that, is that, is that the one? All oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just that one. It's just. If you listen to like the lyrics and stuff, it's proper like in depth, isn't it? Really, and it's quite deep. Where there's like it's more of like a sadder Christmas song rather than like a Christmas song that spreads positivity and joy. It's more of a on the other side of things, isn't it? Because Christmas isn't the same for everyone, is it? So it's, it's good to get the two mixes. And getting a lot of criticism, hasn't it, for using the uh, the F word? Obviously, we can't use it, but. Mm. I don't know. I mean, it's just political correctness gone mad in some ways. Just let, it's an old song. Just let it play on the radio. But <laughs> anyways, <laughs> Rob, little comments. Would you ever release a Christmas song? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> um, That's out there. <laughs> yeah, Mickey often when he's twiddling away around Christmas time, he's he's, he's got this idea of a song and it's called Fuck Christmas um, but I don't really think that's like in the spirit thing so yeah that one's kind of permanently shelved <laughs> oh, to be honest I would look at it I really would <laughs> he's only got the first line really it's, uh, he's, not, he's not put much time into it yeah, well, but so yeah I, I, I kind of see a, a Christmas release anytime soon <laughs> <laughs> well um, so well, today we've taken some questions from fans and uh, I'd just like to bring the first one in because it is talking about the end of 2020 and what's happened this year. And uh, it's put, can Rob predict the events of 2020 in their next song, having released a song with the lyrics, are you ready for the sneeze? Are you ready for the disease to come separating <laughs> children? Did you predict yeah. the virus? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So you'll have to wait and see. We're first release of 2021 and that. That, that people will have to wait and hear what's coming what's coming ahead wow. <laughs> like I don't know it's just one of those things isn't it yeah but you know what like there's a lot of that coming isn't there it's just a matter of time before the world ends in some way <laughs> just going to try and have fun until it does mm. Merry Christmassy <laughs> that's, that's why we're not going to release a Christmas song <laughs> Uh, obviously, uh, being a band that you are, you've toured many times with many other bands. You toured with Pinch Detectors and Catfish in the bottom end. Yeah, right. yeah. How was that experience of touring with those two bands? And like, yeah, how was that? Yeah, like completely different. Like, 
Catfish, um, we toured them, we've toured with them kind of like across almost every stage of the career. So like seeing them in their embryonic beginnings, because we did a gig with them like in Wigan, maybe three or four years before anybody ever heard of them. And you could tell like that Van had something about him. And then the first tour we did where they supported were, it was just great. I'd never kind of properly watched them live before. That was just as things were starting to take off. That was great. And then supporting them on their first big tour was great. It was lovely that they kind of returned the favour. Like a lot of bands don't or wouldn't do that, but kind of they, they always have. And I think that's testament to how well we kind of got on with each other. Um, and I think I like them because they've never changed as people. Whether they were, you know, playing to 80 people or kind of 8,000, it's the same the same level of performance, the same kind of like honesty of performance on stage, but also like behind it all, they're just, you know, like the same, exactly the same as they were, which yeah. is good really. Cause I think again, not all bands when they go through such a kind of meteoric rise can keep that honesty and, and integrity that they kind of started out with. And the Pigeon Detectives, yeah, like we didn't really have any plans to tour and that offer came through and, yeah, I think because we had nothing else to do, we thought oh, it'd be a good one to do. And I, we like we didn't we knew of the pigeon detectives like kind of everybody did, but we mm. didn't know them. And yeah, we got we got on got on really well with them. Um, the singer kind of he broke his ankle or something. He does these big like stage jumps off the drum kit and like in the crowd. And early on in the tour, he broke he broke his ankle, and we were like, well, that's you know. That's the tour I've done. But the next day in Middlesbrough, he turned up with a kind of protective cast around his foot. And we were like, right, well, he's obviously just going to stand there and do the gig. But by the end of it, he was doing huge stage jumps off the, um, <laughs> the drum kit. And that's kind of them in a, in a nutshell, or just, you know, like dead, dead down to earth, nice people who just enjoyed playing the music with people. And I think it was lovely because I don't think they knew how the tour was going to be received. Because it was like 10 years since they'd done the first album, that was the tour. But you could see that as the tour went on, they were kind of like getting more and more into it again. So like obviously you played with Catfish at Castlefield Bowl, I think that's when I first saw you. Like, was, yeah, yeah. was that your biggest debate back then? That Was that the biggest what, sorry? Your biggest like crowd? No, I think our biggest crowd, we did um, when the Olympics were on, we played like the Torch Relay. And we did kind of the regional one at Leeds and there must be about 20, 25,000 people there. But we just like, it's the first time we did a really big gig like that and we did not cope well with it. Mm. Um, I think we made a mistake of, because the stage was so big, we set up with gear really far apart. Yeah. And I think actually when you play a big stage, most bands, again, still set up really tight. They just use the stage in a performance sense. But we didn't. Like we obviously never played a gig like that before, so that was, yeah, that was a big gig, but it wasn't enjoyable. But I think by the time we then did the Catfish gig and we played a couple of arena gigs with them and playing bigger festivals, you kind of get used to it a bit more. I remember that night; that was a really enjoyable gig because the weather was nice. We had a good sound check. They always make sure you get a nice long sound check as a support, which again a lot of bands like don't do. Um, and it was just the vibe. It was like, again, I think the people there they could sense that this was the same band. They were seeing the same band that they'd seen in a hundred, you probably found it in a hundred, two hundred 
capacity venue, it, it was exactly the same performance. Mm. You know, yeah, there were more lights and there was probably a video screen and the stage was bigger, but it was the same connection with the songs. And I remember watching that gig from the side and just feeling dead like it was just lovely to see them having gone from tiny rooms, having grafted for years to get to that point. And you could tell that they were enjoying it as well. Mm-hmm. They weren't like freaked out by it. They weren't under too much pressure to perform. And it was just, yeah, I'm sure everyone in the crowd felt like it was just a, it was a really special night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know when you're going out onto like these big, these big stages with a big crowd, do you, do you get nervous still? Because you've been a band, what is it now, 12 years, I think? I think I read quite a while. Yeah, yeah I'd say that's kind of that's kind of gone. Um, I think obviously when we first started, especially when we're kind of on on Columbia and like doing big gigs for the first time, there was definitely a bit like, oh, you know, we better have a good gig today. Whereas I think now we've realised that we're in it for different reasons. So you know, we enjoy, we you know, we love what we do, and it's lovely to play live. And there's never been a correlation either for us between the size of venue and the enjoyment of the gig. Like we've had enjoyable gigs. Like one of my favourite gigs ever was like in a pub in Sheffield to like 80 people. Mm-hmm. Should, that gig should have been awful. And it was amazing because it was just a connection there with the crowd. Yeah. I think we realised kind of in the few years following that, there was just no point in being, for us, in being nervous because it doesn't help. And it just, it doesn't matter. You know what? Like, what's the worst thing that can happen? Like, you go on stage and have a bad gig. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, you could do that even if you weren't nervous. And I think, yeah, that's kind of gone now. And it's nice because you can just enjoy gigs then. You kind of enjoy the moment. And yeah, it's just, it's, just, it's lovely to be able to do. Like, playing at 50 people or playing at 5,000, like, it's just, you know, it's just nice. It's nice to do. Mm. See, with me, I find it really daunting whether it was five people or 5,000, I'd feel like, nah, I'm all right. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I suppose, like, we've been, like, because me and Mickey as well and Matt have been in bands since we're, like, 12 and 13. Mm-hmm. And we've kind of, like, I don't know how many gigs we've done now in our lives, but, yeah, like, kind of, kind of, I think we've kind of almost lived every disaster as well that could happen on stage. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, like, you kind of, it really isn't, it's never that bad. Like, you know, you get over it. So, what sort of disasters? Like, oh, like I remember we did a gig when we were like 12, 13, we in this kind of really awful covers band, and we're playing a gig for children in need at this big theatre in Newcastle. And the keyboard player had, for some reason, accidentally tuned his piano down like half a tone. So he was completely out of tune when we started playing. <laughs> you knew something was wrong, but you were locked into that four minutes of the song. So you just had to get through it. But we thought it was our guitars, so we were trying to tune guitars, and it was just... No. Uh, so, that, yeah, that was a shocker. Like, Matt's broken bones on two before, so he's had to play, like, sitting on a chair, breaking strings at bad moment. Like, we used to use a laptop for setting off samples. Like, the laptop used to often go down on stage, and it's just like... <laughs> you just you just get you just get on with it. Yeah, I imagine it's like you just just one of the things that can't be helped, can it? Like if something happens, yeah, I definitely. Like if a string, like, if a string goes, for example, that's like brilliant. After as well, like we've done some terrible gigs, like before anybody you know, for like anybody just ever heard who we were, 
we did a festival in Redcar, which is like 20 minutes down the road near Middlesbrough. And we played, and we literally played the one man and a dog. It was a little <laughs> walking past and stop with his dog. And I think when you've done a gig like that, it's like, well, you know, nothing, <laughs> like, nothing's going to be worse than that. I, I think we um, did we have a guest on or I can't remember but I, I saw a story of this band that were playing in a pub and no one showed up so there was like just one man obviously a local in there so they all started playing because as you would and they uh, walked up and he unplugged their amp <laughs> that back wow. so it can get worse than one man in the <laughs> just like not for me <laughs> that's harsh you know what sometimes you, you get someone in the audience we did a game at Portsmouth in, in the last tour and I, there was a few people there and uh, but there was this one guy and then he's standing in the middle of the room right in my line of sight for the whole gig his face was just like a stone and he was not enjoying the gig <laughs> and even though other people were enjoying the gig it just destroyed my entire gig because I Spent the gig thinking, what, what am I, what am I doing wrong? Is it, is it me? Am I having a bad night? Is he does he not like the songs, or has he come like in the band and then he's decided that actually, you know, terrible lie? And I couldn't get it out of my head. <laughs> I spent the whole gig trying to kind of get this bloke to enjoy what, the gig, but he was just having. Maybe he just wasn't a very expressive person on the inside. Mm. Of the but it was when that happens, like that, that can kill a gig. Like there could be five hundred people going mad for it but if there's one person standing in the middle of the room arms folded it's just like oh no mm. <laughs> you're killing you're killing me gig was that one of your like your gigs or were you a sport band for that? no it was one of our gigs I kind of tried because we always go on the merch at the end as well and I tried to kind of like see if I could catch him on the way out just to say like are you, like, you alright like what, what was it because I wanted to know what it was um <laughs> So what's like the difference between headlining your own gig and being a support band? Um, I think prep, like preparation wise, you know, you don't always get a good sound check. Um, sometimes bands and the crew can be like a little bit standoffish towards you, um, which is just weird, really. Mm. Um, like we did a gig, we did a tour early on, like with a twang. And I don't know if their crew had just been instructed to, but they were just like horrible to her. Like they wouldn't move gear. They were like making unpleasant comments. And one of them like ended up like pushing Mickey halfway through the tour. So we we just said, right, we're not, you know, we're off home. We're not, not putting them for that. Um, whereas if it's your gig, you can kind of just, the, the schedule is yours. So you're often like a bit more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And then like the way you approach things as well, you have to think you're set differently. So you'll have a shorter set. Um, and I think early on, we used to be like, right, we need to kind of show people that they haven't come to see us, but they need to go home and remember us. Um, and I think, again, as we've got older, you know, we just we treat them more in the same way. But, you know, like there's not really any point in having that attitude of we've got to go and convince all the crowd to come and see our next gig and da 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 um yeah so there's differences but i wouldn't say i have a like a preference yeah um, either, either way really we spoke to frank ten a few weeks ago and he was talking about when he supports he was saying there's a lot less pressure 
because like they're not there to see you so all right okay yeah yeah you just go and play like you play your own music if you get a few fans doing it then fair enough but it's more of like you can just have fun with it rambling mm-hmm. when you're headlining people are there to see you so you feel more pressure to like put on a show i suppose Yes, yeah, I, I kind of know that. But I think then again, I think like the highest moments I've had on stage have been at headline gigs where because you, you, you can kind of like when you're picking a longer set, you can really, by the end of it, you can get the stage where you, you know emotionally what works. So you know when it's going to peak for the crowd and inevitably like if you're riding on the emotion of the crowd, it'll peak for you as well. Mm. And I think that kind of, that relationship between you and the people who are there to 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 listen to your music. If I've ever had a transcendent moment on stage, like it's been when it's been a, a warm gig. Um, yeah. So yeah, like, but it, you know the, the flip side of that is that if you're having a bad one, then you kind of feel that more as well because you yeah. almost feel like you're letting people down. That they've come to see you and for whatever reason you feel like, like it might be fine, but you might feel like it's just not for whatever yeah. reason it's just not not working. So, um, what were you in your favourite gig? Favourite gig? Yeah. Um, I get a few really... I remember that, that gig in Sheffield, it was like the night before tramlines and we'd been asked to play like the Fringe, would you play on the Sunday on the main stage when it was it was when it was in the middle of Sheffield so it was like almost like a South by Southwest in Sheffield it was like every pub had something on it was like brilliant and we turned up and we're like really like we're we gonna play here and I think Catfish were playing as well like a really early Catfish because Van was like oh was that that gig and um we went in and it just it just for whatever reason it just it was electric like the people there were really into it and we just got carried away and I'll always remember that gig um, when we played in America for the first time we did a gig in New York and there was loads of people there and I think after we got dropped by Columbia we never then had any I, I think we kind of thought that, that that had gone unless something strange happened and I think if you'd have told us when we were like starting writing songs 11 or 12, that one day we'd do a headline gig in New York and there'd be people there, it's like that would have been really like cool. And I think because we were all there, we appreciated it more. And we all had a moment, and that whole tour was just like it was like being in a band again for the first time, like away from home and exploring a new country together. Um, and we all took it in. Yeah. and appreciated it mm-hmm. and it wasn't there was there was no pressure on it I think we knew that it didn't matter if we sold loads of albums in America because just like by that point in my career that's not what drives were so we just enjoyed it no pressure um, so yeah that, that kind of worked to it and then we got to go back a year after and do a gig at Governor's Ball a festival in New York and that whole day was um was great as well because it was just like I don't know, it was just like, like we, but we played, Damon Albon was playing later that day. Mm. And uh, we didn't have a keyboard, we'd forgotten my keyboard stand. So we couldn't exactly go home. <laughs> couldn't exactly go home for it. Um and the, his text lent with a keyboard stand. I remember me and Mickey being a bit like like when we were little, it was a way like Oasis and Blur and we love both, but if you'd have told with it 
years later you'd be borrowing a keyboard, keyboard stand up there and all gone it would be like the best thing ever <laughs> and luckily we were like we weren't so far we were on backsides that we weren't able to enjoy it like it was mm. you know I think we we're really appreciative of, of, of the opportunity so it was uh, just gigs like that um, you just mentioned about Oasis and Blur would they would that type of music be your main influence or has it changed over like the years you've been a band I think we got we became interested in being in a band in that time period because it was basically all bands then like mm. there was a period as well where they just built like an arena in Newcastle and it's an awful sounding building but Blur played Oasis played Ocean Colour Scene played can't remember who else played but it was almost like every month there was another band played and that was our first kind of time of going to gigs as well yeah but in terms of influence like I can't remember the last time I put on a Blur album or an Oasis album. Um, but stuff like Paul Simon when I was growing up. Uh, just like what, whatever my mum and dad would play in the house. Um, and then, I don't know, just like anything. Like there's not a lot of stuff that would be like, oh, I don't like that sort of music, I don't like that sort of music. So I think, yeah, I think we've never, like we've always liked being in a band but we've never it's, oh, it's never been like right we like Oasis so we'll write songs like Oasis yeah mm. we've never we've never kind of had a like a blueprint I think we've always tried to just clear our heads when we write a song just sit down and write there's very rare will be a time where it's like oh I like this song by this band let's try and emulate that kind of soundscape so I would also ask around Rob's view of technology. In several lyri uh, lyrics, he references the negative effect that phones and even television is having on society. Is it an issue with regards to a social norms and even injustices it tries to push? Or is it the more personal effects of losing the ability to converse face to face? A very complex question. For yeah, you. that is a bit yeah, complex, yeah, isn't it? Well, <laughs> Whoever's asked that question, I think they've obviously already thought about the answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I think it is a shame that, you know, a lot of the time... I remember it was, for some reason, the day after the general election, whenever that was, like, this last year. No, it, it wasn't the winter one. I don't think it, I think it was the summer one. Maybe it was. I was on a train going into Birmingham and there was nobody talking to each other and you looked up and down the carriage and everybody was just on a phone. Mm. And I just thought like that, that's such a shame that you've lost kind of, no one was looking up to see what was going on around them. Nobody was interacting with each other. Nobody was looking out the window. It was just everybody was on a phone. And I watched, it was a documentary on iPlayer called Hypernormalization. I can't remember the name of the, the filmmaker. But it's just kind of like just the idea that a phone just reflects you back at you, like what you want to see, you know, viewpoints that you either already agree with or are going to like provoke some sort of reaction. It just keeps you in like a little bubble in which directs you on what to do, what to eat, what to buy, knows when you sleep. Like phones know everything about you. And it is quite, it's like, I remember somebody saying that um, 
you know, you're, you're heading towards like 1984, where, where actually it's far more like a book called A Brave New World mm. by Aldous Huxley. And that's almost more frightening than the um, kind of 1984 scenario. So, yeah, like you just see with your like, kids as well, just staring at a screen. Yeah, uh, I was about to touch on that, like saying like when I was a kid growing up, it's it was so different to how it is now. Like when I was a kid, I used to be like outside, like playing football in the street, that kind of yeah, thing, like yeah, climbing yeah. a tree, falling out the tree <laughs> myself. Well, I, but that, that, I think that's kind of like the, the fear element, isn't it? Like I would never let my little boy go outside and play mm. football in the front because what about the road? What about someone coming to take him away? Yeah. Whereas, like, those things were still there when I was little, but it was just like, well, the, the, the fear didn't trump the, um, like, the, the positive aspect of it, what you, what you got out of it. And I think that is a, that's a shame. And that, that there is, like, an erosion of trust in other people and other people's intentions. Mm-hmm. And I think that's not helped by the fact that day to day you don't really socialize with people that you would never socialize with before like it's yeah. i don't know it's uh it's, I, I, it's you know it's not particularly it's not like the whole direction of travel in the world is not particularly healthy yeah. um, well, like you know like the way you know the way we treat the environment is horrific um and then the kind of like the platitudes you get oh you know we'll do this and we'll do that and it's almost like well you know you bury it for a while and then it resurfaces again and if you've got somebody who is just staring at a device all day or getting everything it takes away your ability to think i think um i don't know maybe i just sound like a a bit of a uh, do you think um being in these lockdowns right will change the way people look at things like in terms of socialise with their mates do you think and going to gigs etc do you think we took it for granted when we didn't when we didn't all have this covid stuff and now we're all like oh actually i just miss my miss talking to my mates or going out with my mates now it's like do you know what i mean like it's instead of us being at a pub or whatever on our phones with our mates we'd rather just be sat there not on our phones talking to them you know what i mean yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, th- I think at first it was like that, but it's almost like you you become conditioned to it after a while. Like if I watch a program on the telly now, that's that, and you see somebody kind of shaking hands with somebody or going into a house, and you're like, oh, why haven't they got a mask on? Or I, 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 I know, I know, I know it's illogical, but that's my that is my mindset now. Like, oh, what? Yeah. You, you're not social distancing, and it's become such a part of um, the fabric of life that. But then I don't know, like it was wild in the summer where it stopped and it was like the floodgates had opened and everybody was doing everything again. And I don't know because I, the what you know, if you, I think Mickey's a really good example. Like Mickey, the his son, the whole, Mickey homeschools his son. Um, they don't have a car. They, they gave up the car, um, and a lot of the things that like, their lives weren't that affected by the lockdown that much. 
Mm. I think they were kind of hoping that it would almost be for some people a realization that you don't need to, you can kind of consume things that don't require, um, like an enormous resource or you don't maybe need to consume as much, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that I was trying to take that as a positive when we were first in lockdown, that maybe people would um, think more about how you can be like responsible and live a bit more sustainably. But the actual effect seems to have been that if you take something away, people are then like completely desperate to have it back that it comes back even more so like you will the things that you missed you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna do them even more when mm-hmm. like lockdown finishes yeah um and I, I think that's a shame because there's definitely aspects of the way we live that that that, that aren't great and that being a bit more circumspect and thinking do I really need to do this I, I, I think that could be a real like positive about having to ice you know be with yourself for a while obviously that's not the same for, that's not the same for everybody but I think you know like the way you live it, it, it has been a good opportunity to almost like do an audit on yourself and think well like am I living in a way which is going to help the planet survive because I don't know I think that is the main you know like people talk about Brexit and they talk about the pandemic, but actually the, you know, the real threat at the minute and has been for years on our our lives is what we're doing in the environment. Yeah, well, um, you've kind of like touched on this final question what I've got for you, which is like talking about how you seem to have a lot of anger at society and the way it's working at the moment. And it's, the question is just, um, is writing songs a good way for you to like, funnel your anger? Yeah, I think in terms of, like, I wouldn't say I'm angry. Um, I I definitely get angry about things, but I think it's more frustration. Yeah. And kind of almost being able to see see the direction of travel, but not being able to do anything about it. And maybe it's, it's a bit of the... I feel frustrated that I don't think ultimately anybody's going to do anything about it because I think that the systems and the, the power base, like the people who are going to be affected by global catastrophe are normal people. Like firstly, it'll be in your countries which are a thousand miles away from ours, so nobody's going to really give a shit. And then when it hit home, you know, as normal, it'll be the poorest people and then it'll work its way up. But the people that will never be affected are the people that, you know, hold the power. Mm. they'll be able to get away to an underground bunker or ride it out. And, you know, I think I probably write about it because it's almost like it's, I just feel that there's a lot of futility. And if I didn't, if I didn't write about it, then I'd almost be just succumbing to it. That attitude that you can't do anything about it. So what's the point? Whereas at least, I don't know, subconsciously, maybe if I'm writing about it, I feel that I'm doing something about it. Yeah. Um, and I do, like, sometimes writing a song is a is a really joyful thing. And it's just about an expression of 
like catching an idea that's floating by in the wind, like almost not my tune, not my words. I just kind of like catch it. Like I like that idea that songs are floating about and you just channel them somehow. But sometimes like it is a really cathartic thing and especially lyrically, I do sometimes feel like I kind of need, I need to write about this because you can talk about it, but like, I think the way I, 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 I don't often express myself well when I'm using words or talking to somebody, especially if it's something I feel passionate about. Whereas with a song, because I write the word second, I have a defined amount of syllables that I need to get my point across in. So I have to be considered. Uh, it has to make sense, mm. which some of the time, <laughs> some of the time it probably doesn't. But mm. yes, yeah, so I think it's definitely a cathartic thing. It's not yet. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm angry about it. It's just like. I think it's sad. Like when you, when you think about it, it's sad because I look at my children and I think, what's the world going to be like in 30 years time? And then I mm-hmm. think, well, what about my grandchildren? If I have any grandchildren um, and the, uh, the direction of travel is not good. And it's, it's, it's worrying because I think people are complacent. I think ultimately people have the attitude that, well, they'll find something that'll sort it out and people aren't going to change what they do and the way they consume because they'll just rely on somebody else. And I think if the coronavirus can teach you anything, it's that you can't, you know, if something does take hold, then actually you don't have any control over it and somebody isn't going to come along really and sort it out. You know, there's going to be, there's going to be pain and there's going to be people who suffer. Mm. But you can guarantee that the people who are going to be in pain and are going to suffer aren't going to be the people who, you know, who are making the decisions. Yeah. Definitely. That's like, that's, that's what's, that's the most frustrating aspect of it. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, you could do something about it, you know, mm-hmm. like it's pretty magnificent. Really the whole country did pretty much say, right, well, we're not going to do anything for two weeks. You know, we're going to come together and we are going to do something for the betterment of society. And as, as, tough as it was and yet you know obviously it went on for more than two weeks but it just shows that like collectively you can cajole people into changing massive aspects of the life to better the future um and if you can do it for you know something which is life-threatening but isn't a planet ender really then why can't you do something about an issue which like is is gonna end the planet and the only conceivable reason is that it doesn't benefit those who want to cling on the power and wealth yeah um, definitely you mentioned about people being in charge one of them recently said about musicians need to retrain as something else what would you retrain as which is it's a ridiculous comment anyway but you know, I think we're probably yeah probably a labourer because I've quite enjoyed the last few months of like working in in building the studio because like it's nice to work with your hands Mm. I really enjoy like I'm not very good but I really Mm. like kind of like use a lot of wood I like wooden wood sounds quite ridiculous Um, (laughs) but the main thing about it is it's nice to have something tangible at the end of the day Mm. if we work on a song all day and it's rubbish you've literally done nothing with your day really yeah, you yeah. can go backwards as much as you go forwards, but 
as long as you don't accidentally knock a wall down, like with working <laughs> on the studio, like I have a task list and at the end of the day, I can be like, all right, I, I did that today. So I think, yeah, like I've really, like say me and Mickey have got on better the last few months than we have done for ages working in the studio because we've had like a, you know, like yeah. a common goal. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, like if I have to retrain, then I have to retrain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, for me, I'm just, hoping, I'm just hoping the podcast takes off because I mm. once did manual labour and I was there on a forklift and I accidentally took a full wall down because I went into it. <laughs> but I don't think that's for me. I'll, I'll stick to sitting in my room. <laughs> <laughs> that's impressive. Um, thank you for your time and thank you for your honesty. It's been a great interview. Thank mm. you. No, but I know you said it was a Christmassy one, but I hope I haven't kind of taken the uh, <laughs> taken the joy out of Christmas for anybody uh, listening to sorry. it. Sorry, um, I've just got one last request. One of my friends at work is a huge fan of Little Comets. Is there any chance you could wish him a Merry Christmas to yeah, George? What? George? No, Josh. Josh. Yeah. <laughs> well, if anyone's called George, listening, Merry Christmas. But also, <laughs> yeah, Merry Christmas, Josh. Hope you have. Uh, a lovely time and a peaceful new year. Thank you. And Josh, that's your secret Santa, so don't expect anything in the past. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, cheers for watching. If you enjoyed this, leave a like, subscribe, and cheers.